This is Tom Lee, the Editor-in-Chief of NEJAM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Mark Harrison, the CEO of Intermountain Health. It's not the first time we've talked with Mark, but this is a very special time, an unusual time, in that Mark is in the hospital. He just received a bone marrow transplant for multiple myeloma. I'm not violating HIPAA. Uh, Mark has been very transparent and uh, has even had an interview about it out on YouTube. We had scheduled this interview some time ago before we knew that Mark would be having this hospitalization because we wanted to check in on how the One Inner Mountain initiative was doing. I consider that one of the most interesting and important strategic initiatives in U.S. healthcare right now. But before we go there, you know, Mark is, Mark is willing to talk a little bit about how things are going and what he's learned as, uh, as a patient to date. So let me thank you for taking the time uh, during, during your hospitalization, Mark, and what have you learned? So, so Tom, it's my pleasure to talk to you, and, and thanks for this opportunity. I, I've learned both the, um, the mundane and the profound. So the mundane is days are really, really long when you don't have work to go to. And um, the bone marrow transplant unit, as terrific as the people are, um, it gives you a lot of time to think about what your next blood count is going to be. So I, I think that um, you know, it gives me an immense appreciation for the people who work in this environment and for the patients who receive care here. I have an enormous amount of empathy for people who have to travel a long way. As it happens, the unit that I'm in is just about two or three miles from where Mary Carol and I live. And you know how lucky are we that she gets to go home and sleep in her, she gets to sleep in her own bed at night, and she can come and go as she pleases. But really gives me a lot of um, both concern and empathy for people who come up hundreds and thousands of miles to get the kind of care that I'm getting. Well, you know, David Zass, the CEO of. Uh, uh, Raleigh Regional, uh, one of the Duke hospitals, he went through a bone marrow transplant himself and uh, for a very, a very challenging type of leukemia. And fortunately, he, there's every indication he's cured. Uh, and it, he also found it a transformative experience. And he, he came away tuned into people like housekeeping, the, the people who, uh, you know, the people he interacted with considerably more often than the doctors. You know, it, it really, it, this is a total team sport. And um, so whether it's the nurses or the aides or the housekeepers or the people who take your order from, from the food service, uh, I've received a degree of compassion um, and professionalism that I could, I could only dream about. And I think that, um, you know, I, I sure hope that I'll be cured like Dr. Zass was. But I'm not sure that's the case. You know, I, I talk about this in my video. Uh, multiple myeloma is not a curable disease right now, but it's a very manageable disease. And it's been fascinating to think about uh, having a bad problem like this and um, making good things come out of it uh, over a period of time including this in my journey of self-discovery so that I can be a more effective husband, father, physician, CEO, and um, just walking this path the best way that, that I possibly can. And um, it makes you realize um, how important our jobs are, but also how insignificant we are at the same time. And clearly for me, 
a sense of legacy, which will hopefully come a long time from now, will be around making healthcare better for the people in the communities we serve, but also for the United States. And if I can do that in the smallest possible way, then um, it's all been a success. And I think yeah. that you know the most acute opportunity as a leader right now um, is actually to use my uh, time on the sidelines uh, in the best possible way for me, which is to get better, but also to use the brain power that I have um, and the time that I have to think strategically and to allow my team, and I'm very biased, I think they are an absolutely phenomenal, high-functioning, high-integrity, generous, thoughtful team to really run the organization. And uh, this is the advantage of having a super clear strategy uh, to understanding exactly what our goals are, exacting, understanding exactly what our mission is. And now this is a good opportunity for me to do what leaders say they're going to do and get out of their way and let them run hard and fast and true and execute. Well, let's shift gears and turn to the Wonder Inner Mountain Initiative because, um, yeah. as I said, I, I do think it's incredibly important. Can you give a very quick summary about what what is it about? Sure, Tom. Um, it really is around um, creating a structure that, that supports the function of delivering against population health and value. Yeah, we're very strong believers that that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets and that we believe American healthcare is largely designed to drive volume uh, first and with quality and affordability, you know, long second and third place behind those things. And what we, Kate, we tumbled to the idea that Intermountain really is in two basic businesses. First, the business of keeping people well and second, the business of taking care of them when they're sick and developing a consumer-oriented uh, ecosystem around them so that people seamlessly flow uh, back and forth um, from the different sides of the organization. And um, we've worked really hard at that. And um, we're starting to, uh, we've, we've changed the structure. We're beginning to see real improvements from a safety, a quality, and affordability standpoint. And, um, and we're talking a lot right now about um, what the value equation really should be set up as. So we all know it as um, uh, quality divided by cost over time, but I think that what Intermountain is beginning to do is to redefine it in terms of healthiness over affordability over time. And uh, that really is the proper measure, we think, of how the U.S. healthcare system should both function and be held accountable. Well, when you went to Intermountain in 2016, uh, everyone was talking about how this isn't an example of trying to take a good system and make it great, but you were going to be taking a great system and trying to make it greater, which is in many ways harder to do because the great systems know they're great. So what was it that pushed you to adopt this approach, which was uh, sure to create some, some immune reaction uh, by, by your new colleagues? I've never been a person who's willing to settle in any way. And my read on Intermountain was this is a system that's not willing to settle. So you're right. When I got here... Um, Intermountain was 
um, and continues to be one of the great systems in the United States. Um, yet I could see and happily the board could see there was a lot more opportunity for greatness in the form of service. So we hadn't yet made a transformation from volume to value as thoroughly as, um, as we might. We weren't playing as a team across the whole system to drive out cost and variability and improve patient experience. Uh, we weren't as transparent either internally or externally um, as we thought we might be. And we hadn't fully exercised our commitment to the community. We were cared about the community and we were good stewards for the community, but we hadn't yet begun to think about community health as a part and parcel mission of a modern uh, delivery system. Those things all being true um, and having the basis of a great history and a strong motivation for doing the right thing, um, I think the, you know, the ground was really fertile for taking on some really difficult decisions that did in fact provoke some immune response. Well, the aspect of Winter Mountain that, as you know, I've been really interested in has been the teams that took accountability for planning care for various conditions all across the system, uh, deciding what will be done inpatient and outpatient and what will be done in what places and where things would not be done at all. Now, it seems logical to have a thoughtful group plan care that way until some people find out that it means a change in their work life and they're, no, they're going to be unhappy. So how has that gone? Uh, it's gone uh, well and it's, and it's been tough at times too. Um, and um, I think that the, one of the freeing elements has been that we've been able to hold the various decision makers harmless economically on a personal level for the decisions that they're going to make um, and to be able to constantly reinforce what's the right thing to do for the population that we serve. And, um, and also to be able to share with them that we're willing to use um, our economic strength to support decisions that don't necessarily always make economic sense in the very short run. So I'll, I'll give you an example um, of that. A couple of nurses in central Utah at one of our rural hospitals discovered that patients were deciding to die uh, rather than to receive chemotherapy because they didn't want to spend um, hours and days of um, every week driving back and forth to one of our big centers. And they came up with the idea of doing distance oncology. And um, it turns out it's been wildly successful. So patients are willing to go and get staged and get a treatment plan set up in one of our big centers. But now in eight different sites across the system and beyond, um, you can get your infusions um, right close to home. Now, did that make sense for us economically? Actually, no, um, it, it didn't. But it made sense in the long run for the rural communities that these folks are in because some revenue stayed at home, but it made human sense. And I think that um, as even our most skeptical caregivers looked at the changes we were making, if they saw that day in, day out, every single decision we made should benefit a patient, whether it's 
in their quality, their safety, the kind of results they were getting, or in maintaining an economically viable ecosystem so that they, in fact, had jobs and their patients had jobs, uh, I think that um, people have, have gotten on board. Well, what you just described is completely consistent with what uh, Michael Porter and I uh, are describing in a forthcoming article in NHM Catalyst on the use of geography and value, and uh, and we, we feature Intermountain in that article. We, we have that, and we've got like a dozen other examples. This is actually something that your readers should, should really think about. Um, we came up with a program in, in um, our Level 3 nursery in St. George that um, sought to de-interventionalize the care of uh, very fragile premature newborns. And they were able to demonstrate that with care, they could draw many fewer labs. Uh, babies needed fewer blood transfusions. They needed central lines for shorter periods of time. They were really careful about how they used uh, mechanical ventilation. Bottom line is they came up with a process that greatly shortened hospitalizations, decreased morbidity, decreased mortality, and decreased cost per case. So absolutely spectacular. And it's getting, the project is called POKE, P-O-K-E, and it's beginning to get national and international attention, which it deserves. So here's the interesting question for a group of healthcare leaders. So let's say we implement that in all of our level three and our single level four nursery across the system. Um, can we afford the $50 million revenue hit um, associated with, and that's net revenue, associated with um, bringing this um, program into fruition across the system. And um, at a recent leadership team meeting, I actually asked our top 700 leaders of the organization what would they do. So we know this is the right thing to do. We know it's going to save lives. It's going to make families happier. It's going to make kids healthier. But we as leaders need to then find $50 million in savings so that we can balance the books. And are they willing to do that? And I was not surprised, but I was entirely gratified that I received an overwhelming response that it's absolutely the right thing to do. But this is the hard stuff of healthcare reform, and it's the hard stuff of leadership. And um, I'd like to see more and more systems across the country making these kinds of decisions. Well, it does sound like your teams are, uh, are empowered to think about what's the best way to take care of people, and then you figure out the finances Second, second, which is the the right order for things. Well, other, that is the right order. Yeah. Well, what has proved most difficult? Was it uh, has it been the clinical programs or or something else? No, actually, I think the um, you know if I if I can be extremely frank, um, the number of people who are willing to um, look at their life's work and be able to celebrate incremental change on top of that is actually fairly small. And I think the vast majority of, of our leaders have been really flexible and thoughtful in terms of being willing to make change in the best interest of other people. But there have been circumstances where people have viewed this as an affront. Um, and um, I think that's sad and unfortunate, uh, but it also doesn't completely surprise me either. So I think it is, um, you know, it's the willingness, the spirit of saying, hey, the next person, the next idea is always going to be better and it's going to stand on the shoulders of the work that I've done. 
which is certainly the intent of what we've done at this great system. But it's not a criticism. It's simply an, another iteration. Uh, my cousin, the psychologist Angela Duckworth, who writes about grit, what she would say is... That's that, your cousin, I mean, Tom? Angela's yes, your cousin? My, she is my cousin. and That's amazing. Uh, well, what she would say is a critical part of our role as, as leaders is trying to spread a growth mindset throughout the organization where uh, everyone does want to improve and that that's a, a social norm. Um, but it's, that's, a, that's a very important, challenging job. Um, it it is. Um, I, I think it's mostly getting there, Tom. And um, one of the things that has helped is, you know, we've got this rigorous operating model. And last year we implemented 50,000 ideas from the front lines and we're on pace to exceed that this year. And I think when people can see that their ideas count, I think that really adds to the growth mindset that you and Angela described. Well, that, that may well be the answer to my next question, which was, you know, on the flip side, what's gone well? Uh, is it the, all the ideas that are coming forward? Uh, what's made you happiest and most proud? Well, I think what, what's made me the most proud is when I hear a story about um, clinical processes that are smooth and safety and quality that is that greatly uh, that, that has benefited um, a patient. Um, I love the fact that um, at this point in time, our care is more affordable than it has been. It's nowhere near where it needs to be. But, you know, I, I, I frankly describe the tough stuff that, you know, credit to the team. Uh, Intermountain has never performed better from a safety or quality standpoint. It's never performed better economically. It's never performed better in terms of community health. And I, I a lot of times, feel like I barely do anything. I just sort of get out of the way and let people do what they want to do and execute against the strategy that we've laid out together. Well, change like this doesn't happen overnight. And uh, the last time I saw you several months ago, you were emphasizing we're just at the beginning. Uh, so in your mind, what's the time frame for this work? Is it a five-year thing, a 10-year thing? And how do you hope Intermountain might be different in five to 10 years from it is now? It's a great question, Tom. Um, so change will occur forever. Um, and I think that the drive towards population health and value is inexorable for us. In five years, even more of our work will be done in an outpatient setting. Even more of it will be done over a digital platform. Our patients will be yet more empowered and have uh, greater control over their health and wellness, as well as transparency into how the system works. I sure hope that in five years we aren't going to need a person to guide another human being through how do you get an appointment with you name the specialist. I mean, that is a sign that systems just don't work. And uh, we, we aim to, to go ahead and change that. I think you'll see that Precision Health is knitted um, through and through our organization now, but even more so in five years. What I really hope is that in five years' time, the Intermountain will have been a catalyst to spur a discussion around affordability in the United States, and that every single healthcare CEO in the U.S. will be able to talk with authority about the percentage of people who they care for who have unaffordable healthcare, and that we should be having that conversation transparently and frequently. If we do that, then we'll be serving our mission to the communities.
Well, Mark, I want to thank you for your time today. It's a great vision. It's, it's, it's wonderful work. Uh, we are all rooting for your success, and, of course, we're rooting for a smooth course for you as you recover from, uh, from your bone marrow transplant. And I can tell you that many people in healthcare want to be there at the finish line when you finish your first triathlon uh, after, your, after your bone marrow transplant. We'll be there. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. Hey, can we just take a minute to remember Bernard Tyson? I mean, well, it's just absolutely yes. shocking that he passed away so unexpectedly. And talk about a guy who was just fearless in terms of driving towards a vision of health equity for our country. I mean, what a loss, but what a legacy. Yes, he was one of the good guys.